I am a lifelong sports fan, but a new Yankees fan, thanks to the influence of someone really important to me. And after getting really emotionally invested in the team by watching movies like Pride of the Yankees and 61, which let me tell you, both of those movies will tug at your heartstrings. So please be prepared. I was not prepared. Not to mention watching the Yankees play so well this season, I am definitely on the bandwagon now. So when I saw that Mark Feinstein had a book coming out on June 7th called The Franchise, New York Yankees, A Curated History of the Bronx Bombers, I reached out to see if I could read it and I read it in a day. I learned so much and I knew I had to have him on the show to talk about the Bronx Bombers. As he'll say in our interview, you either love the Yankees or you hate them. There's really no lukewarm in between here. And I'm really proud to say that I've fallen in love with the Yankees and find the bandwagon seats quite comfortable, if I do say so myself. So let's dig into this legendary team, the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry, the core four, and so much more with Mark. And hey, even if you quote-unquote hate the Yankees, you'll enjoy this perspective on baseball. Take a listen. Mark, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thanks, Rachel. I appreciate you having me on. Coming off of a Yankees win last night, feeling good. Life is good. Season is good. Yeah, this has certainly been a, a fun year for the Yankees to this point. Obviously, there's uh, still a hundred and something games left. And as we know, right. baseball is a long grind of a season where, uh, you know, anything can happen. But uh, they certainly seem to be putting themselves in position led by Aaron Judge to, to have a nice year. Absolutely. Well, before we get into the book, which was great, by the way, I'd love to know a little about you. So if you would tell me, if you will, your Yankees origin story, I know you've covered the team since 2001. So was that your entry point or had you followed the team before that? Well, I grew up in New York City. My dad actually grew up about two blocks from Yankee Stadium. So I was a big Yankee fan as a kid. Okay. Uh, I, went, I went to Boston University right in the heart of Red Sox country uh, for journalism and uh, ended up doing a few different jobs in the sports journalism industry. Uh, in my first four years out of school, I worked at a trade publication called the Sports Business Daily, uh, and then FoxSports.com. And then in 2001, MLB.com was launching uh, sort of in its current iteration. Uh, and I was hired as the first Yankees beat writer. So that was my first sort of full-time baseball job. And it happened to be uh, covering the team that I grew up rooting for that fandom gets beaten out of you pretty quickly because you just can't be emotional uh, about games when you're, exactly. you know, when you're, when you're objective. trying to write on deadline uh, and you're trying to, you know, write objectively and, and sort of wear your journalism hat and not your baseball fan hat. Uh, uh -huh. But I love the game. And so just being around the game uh, for the past two plus decades has been, has been wonderful. I ended up doing 16 years covering the Yankees, the first six for MLB.com, the next 10 for the New York daily news. Uh, and then at the beginning of 2017, I returned to MLB.com um, in a national reporter role, which is uh, where I still am to this day. Well, what a time, right, to begin covering the Yankees. Were you there for the post 9-11 World Series run? What what time of year, I guess, did you start covering? Yeah, that was that was my first season covering the team. I started uh -huh. in February, so I was there for the whole the whole season. You know, of course, they were coming off of four World Series titles in five years. And, uh, and it was like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to cover a whole bunch of World Series championships and, uh, you know, the Joe Torre Yankees and Derek Jeter. And then they didn't win one for the first eight years that I was on the beat. Um, you know, my friends who are Yankee fans were blaming me. So you got to get off that beat. They haven't won since you've been there. <laughs> I said they've been to two World Series and they've been in the playoffs pretty much every year. But 
uh, it wasn't enough. Yankee fans want the championship or nothing. So, um, but yeah, the, the, obviously that, that first postseason that I covered in 2001, uh, sort of in the aftermath of 9-11 was, was pretty insane. Obviously as a New Yorker, um, you know, my mom and my stepdad were actually down at the world trade center complex that morning, thankfully they both got out. Um, but it was it was a very emotional time to be a New Yorker, and it was it was kind of cool to see the whole country kind of come behind New York and, and actually yeah. you know rooting for the Yankees unless you were the team playing them um, or the Red they Sox came up, or the Red Sox. I you know I even I have a lot of friends in Boston, and even they were kind of like you know I'm never going to root for the Yankees, but if there was ever a year where I wouldn't really mind seeing them win, this would be the one. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, obviously, they fell a little bit short in Game Seven, uh, but it didn't matter. It was it was a very emotional and magical postseason. No kidding. Um, you know, with with Oakland and Seattle and, and Arizona, a lot of cross country flights and flying. You know, six eight weeks after 9-11 was not an easy thing to do. Right. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So it was it was it was a pretty crazy time, but uh, certainly a very interesting introduction to baseball beat writing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was 15 years old and I even remember that the Yankees became America's team after 9-11. And um, I remember that season, that season of baseball well. And, you know, as I told you offline, I'm a new Yankees fan, a rookie, if you will. And this season is going well for the team. As we spoke about at the top of the show, they're first in the AL East, at least as we speak here on June 1st. They won last night. They're doing well. So if you had to choose, this might be an impossible question. This might be a Sophie's Choice question, but which season in your 21 years of covering the team has been your favorite so far? Well, I have to say it's 2009, mostly because it was the only one where they won the World Series. And so you got to sort of start from the first day of spring training and end with a parade down the Canyon of Heroes in New York. It was just a cool experience, Uh, you know. I wasn't necessarily a fan, but when you cover a team, you get to know the guys on the team. You get to know the guys in the front office and the women in the front office and the people behind the scenes. And, you know, you become friendly with a bunch of them. And so you're rooting for the people more than the the uniform. Um, You know, that team in particular was the first year where they brought in guys like CC Sabathia and AJ Burnett, Mark Teixeira, Nick Swisher. Uh, And so it was a little bit of a changing of the guard while the, the core four guys and Jeter and Posada, Rivera and Pettit were all still there. So it was, it was sort of a transitional period and everything came together and they won. So um, my last book uh, that I co-wrote with my colleague, Brian Hoke was called mission 27 came out three years ago uh, on the 10 year anniversary of that 2019. And we basically went back and uh, you know, sort of dissected that entire year and sat down with pretty much every member of that team 10 years later to talk about that season. And we got some great stories that hadn't been out there uh, before. So I would say 2009 for the year and the experience of covering it that year. And then 10 years later, being able to write kind of the definitive book about, uh, mm-hmm. about that championship team, which to this day, at least as of right now, is still the last championship team the Yankees had. So I would have to pick that year. That makes sense. So let's let's dig into the book, if we will, starting with maybe the most legendary Yankee and possibly the greatest player of all time. Of course, that's Babe Ruth. So you write that the decision to purchase Ruth from the Red Sox for $100,000 turned out to be a franchise-altering move for the Yankees. But as you write, there were critics who believed the Babe was little more than a sideshow. They thought Babe was just destroying a pure scientific game 
with his brute strength. So it, where, from where I sit, I don't understand how anyone could not be happy to have Babe Ruth on their team, but unpack that for me. Well, he wasn't Babe Ruth yet. I mean, he wasn't the greatest you know, baseball player of all time. He was this yeah. kind of freak show that, uh, you know, back in the 1920s, home runs were not were not part of the game the way they are now. They were sort of something that occasionally happened versus, you know, teams with, with lineups filled with sluggers. Um, you know, baseball back then was more of a contact game, a lot of hit and run and, you know, base to base. And, you know, obviously the players in the 1920s were not the athletic specimens that they are today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Babe Ruth all of a sudden showed up and he was out homering other teams uh, over the course of a season. And so for the quote unquote traditionalists or purists, it was like this guy coming in and, and you know, playing chess when everybody else was playing checkers. I'm like, mm. well, what's he doing to the game? Uh, obviously he became the biggest star in the game and, uh, you know, helped the Yankees win their first world series and, uh, and a number of them after that, uh, and set all sorts of records all over the place. And, uh, you know, for 86 years or 80, 86 years anyway, he was the quote unquote curse behind the Red Sox, not winning after they sold him. So, mm-hmm. uh, obviously a, a huge figure in baseball lore, uh, and baseball history and, and, you know, sort of the, the guy who started it all when it comes to uh, the past hundred years of, uh, you know, of Yankees dominance, where they've essentially won, you know, about a little more than a quarter of the, of the World Series that have been out there. Which is unbelievable. And, you know, the first section of the book talks about the behind the curtain leadership of the Yankees franchise. I found that really fascinating because, you know, we hear about the Babe Ruth, we hear about the Derek Jeters, but we don't often hear names like Jacob Rupert Jr. Is it Rupert or Rupert? Rupert. Rupert. Okay. These are the team owners, the managers, the coaches. So Jacob Rupert Jr. is a name I'd never heard before. And you quote baseball historian Peter Morris as saying that he turned a sad sack franchise into a dynasty and that he's one of the few owners about whom you could say if he had not lived baseball would have been different so walk us through Rupert's impact which you call as large as anybody in team history yeah you know back then uh the Yankees were as as Marty Appel is a Yankee historian he wrote a great history of the team called Pinstripe Empire he sort of you know told me they were they were second-class citizens in New York um you know they were sort of the the team that nobody really paid attention to. They didn't play in their own stadium. They played at the polo grounds. Um, And Rupert was the guy who said, well, we need to build our own big stadium and we need to be a first-class organization. And little things like having two sets of uniforms for double headers, uh, which was not anything that was done back then, but he wanted his players to look clean and crisp and, you know, feel good taking the field. Um, And he, uh, you know, he basically turned the Yankees from this sort of second-class operation into the team that they became and obviously a huge part of that was the building of Yankee Stadium a huge part of that was you know the decision to acquire Babe Ruth um and you know he understood that there were people who knew more about baseball and he deferred to them throughout the course of his ownership Uh, you know a guy like George Weiss who, who essentially created the farm system as we know it today and uh you know under Rupert's watch the Yankees ended up acquiring, you know, a dozen or so players who went into the Hall of Fame, guys like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Joe DiMaggio. So, uh, you know, Rupert was George Steinbrenner before George Steinbrenner without maybe all of the swag and noise. Um, Obviously, it was a different media world in the 1920s than it is now uh, or was during Steinbrenner's heyday. Um, But, you know, they won 10 AL pennants and seven World Series 
and and acquired Babe Ruth and built Yankee Stadium. That's a pretty good legacy to have. Yeah, no kidding. So, you know, I'm curious after reading that first section of the book, which I found really fascinating because I follow sports, but I don't often do a lot of digging into the behind the curtain leadership. So I'd love to know what you think makes for a good owner or general manager. What skills does someone in that role have to have to be successful? Well, I think when you look at current day baseball, it's a whole lot different than it was back then. There wasn't free agency back then. There wasn't um, you know, the, the multi-million dollar contracts. Uh, I think for an owner, knowing what you don't know is probably the most important thing. Most mm-hmm. people who own baseball teams are billionaires who have, in, in most cases, have made their money in other businesses and then bought a baseball team um, almost as a, a, a pet project or a vanity project or uh, something like that, even though baseball teams obviously earn a lot of money. Um, but being able to hire the right baseball people and, and understanding that they know more about baseball than you do. And obviously some owners are more involved in the day-to-day decision-making than others. I mean, Hal Steinbrenner, of whom there's a chapter in the book, yeah. um, he's very different from his father. George Steinbrenner was emotional. He was uh, you know, loud and, and loved to be on the back pages and um, you know, short temper and, and sort of a short trigger finger when it came to, or a quick trigger finger when it came to firing a manager or firing a GM. Uh, Hal has worked with Brian Cashman, another person with whom, with whom there's a chapter in the book, um, you know, for, for the entire time that he's been running the team since 2008. And since before then, when he was involved with his father on the team, he understands that Brian is a very diligent person. He's going to make uh, recommendations that he thinks are in the best interest of the team. And at the end of the day, Hal is the one who makes the final call of whether to sign the free agent or make the trade. Um, but knowing that your baseball people have done the job and brought you a recommendation, I think it's very rare that he doesn't go with what the GM recommends. As far as the GM goes, you have to have a real uh, strong tree of people below you uh, to do a lot of that work, right? To, to go out yeah. and scout the players, to, to run the analytics department, um, you know, to, to scout players from every other team when it comes to the trade deadline one man or woman can't do all of that. So uh, being able to delegate that stuff and have the trust in the people that work for you, um, it's, not, it's not a one-man show or a one-woman show. Uh, you need to have a strong department to help you make those decisions. And then again, you're the one who makes those decisions to recommend to the owner. So there's a lot of, you know, it takes a village is the old saying. I think to yeah. run a baseball team, whether you're an owner or a GM, it definitely takes a village. Well, speaking of a village, there are 50-ish Yankee players inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's that's unbelievable. And I may not have recognized the name Rupert, but even any casual baseball fan would recognize the names of some of those, if not all of those, 50 Yankees in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yogi Berra, Joe DiMaggio, Whitey Ford, Lou Gehrig, Derek Jeter. I mean, it's a spoil of riches. Mickey Mantle, the aforementioned Babe Ruth, so many more. But your book taught me the Yankees Mount Rushmore, which honors the greatest of the great, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio. So I don't have any argument here, but why these four? What makes those four legends among legends? It's just it's just hard to question the careers that any of them had. They all won multiple World Series, uh, you know, were MVPs, were among the greatest players in the game at the time they played, not just the greatest Yankees, but the greatest players in general. It's tough when you have 100 plus years of history the way the Yankees do 
um, you know, you could argue Yogi Berra has 10 World Series rings. Why wouldn't he be on that Mount Rushmore? He has three MVP awards. Why wouldn't he be there? Yeah. Eric Dieter has 3,000 hits. Uh, Mariano Rivera is the greatest closer that's ever played the game. Whitey Ford is one of the winningest pitchers of all time, uh, winning his lefties. It's, it's tough to limit it to four, but I think if you talk to anybody who has studied this team and knows this team, Ruth, Gary, DiMaggio, and Mantle are, are the four that uh, are just sort of unquestionably uh, the Mount Rushmore of this team. You could make a second Mount Rushmore with those other four guys that I mentioned, Vera, Rivera, Jeter, and Ford. And that would probably be better than the Mount Rushmore for 26 other teams. Um, <laughs> right, it's, right. it's a rich history. And, you know, when we were going through, my editor and I were going through the uh, process of, of coming up with the, the, the chapters and, and the, the breakdown of how we were going to do the book, because you're trying to write a history of a team that has more history than you could possibly write. I mean, you could write, oh, if you were going to write a full definitive history of the Yankees, it would be a 2000 page book. Yeah. I wasn't writing a 2000 page book. So, right, um, right. you know, we focused on a lot of the legends. There is a section part two of the book is called the legends. Um, and I kind of put those four Mount Rushmore guys together in one chapter for a couple of reasons. Number one, as skillful a reporter as I believe I can be, you're not going to uncover much that hasn't been out there about those four. They've all been deceased for quite a while. I couldn't get any of them on the phone. Uh, there aren't even that many people who saw, you know, Ruth and Gehrig play at this point. Um, so uh, there was only so, you know, there have been huge, amazing books written about all of these people on their own. Um, so right. I, I decided let's just tackle these four guys together um, and then hit some of the others. And we hit Yogi Berra and, um, you know, Mariano Rivera, Bernie Williams, who is not a Hall of Fame caliber player, but is certainly among the most important Yankees of the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the cleanup hitter on those Joe Torre championship teams, uh, homegrown guy, switch hitter, uh, one of the most, you know, beloved players of his generation. Uh, he always gets left out of that core four argument because he had retired by the time that, that Jeter and Posada Rivera and Pettit were going for that fifth ring. And that's when the core four thing was kind of coined. Um, but Bernie Williams is every bit as important to, to those championship teams uh, as any of those other players. Well, I want to talk about the core four for a second. So these are, you know, Yankees fans listen. I'm sure, of course, non-Yankees fans listen to the show. So you've got more recent players like Jeter, Rivera, Pettit, Posada, who make up the core four. So for a non-Yankee listener out there, what does it mean to be a part of the core four? What is the core four? So the core four was those four players, Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, Jorge Posada, and Andy Pettit. They were all homegrown Yankees from the early to mid nineties who formed the core along with Bernie Williams and Paul O'Neill um, of those Joe Torre championship teams from 1996 to 2000. They won four times in five years. Uh, really on the strength of these homegrown players. Now, before George Steinbrenner had been suspended from baseball, his MO was usually to trade those young players for more established veterans who he thought would bring in more fans and make them give the Yankees a better chance to win right now. He didn't have the patience to watch young players develop. He was suspended from baseball uh, in the early 90s, and Gene Stick Michael, another guy who's in, uh, in that Architects chapter, uh, was the GM and he basically said, we're not, we're, we're, we're going to groom these guys. We're going to develop them. This is going to be uh, what gets us back to the top. They hadn't won a world series in 1978 at this point. And so those four guys, Bernie Williams, another homegrown guy, Paul O'Neill had been traded for a few years earlier. Um, 
but they were the core of those championship teams. The core four nickname, I want to say Sports Illustrated put them on the cover in 2009, and maybe that was the first time we ever saw core four. I don't remember who exactly coined the term initially, Mm. Um, but they were still playing in 2009. And Bernie Williams had retired in 2000, after the 2006 season. So at the time that this story was being written and people were talking about them going for another championship, they were the four sort of left from the core of that, uh, those 90s championship teams. So, you know, Jeter and Rivera are in the Hall of Fame. Pettit and Posada are not, but they have their numbers retired by the Yankees. And they're uh, obviously super important people in the history of the franchise. Uh, and they were four of the most popular players that that have worn the pinstripes in the last 50 years, if not ever. Uh, so it's it's um, you know it was a special group and one that is really rare in the game, where you see a lot of players leaving their teams uh, as free agents or teams don't have enough money to keep all of these players together when they have a, a nice homegrown core. We saw the Marlins a few years ago; uh, they had Giancarlo Stanton, Christian Yelich, Marcelo Zuna as this great young outfield. Uh, and they ended up trading all of them. So uh, it was just a very unique group that that came came up together and won a lot together and, uh, you know, all retired within a few years of each other. Honestly, it's just an embarrassment of riches, the Yankees. I mean, I've, I've never followed a team where even legends sometimes get overlooked because there's just so much talent in this franchise to choose from. So, you know, of 21 years, 21 seasons covering this team, what would we be surprised to know about your work covering the Yankees? It seems like a dream job. What has been maybe one of the wildest stories from your two plus decades? I'm sure there's tons to choose from. Well, you know, I, I covered the team during sort of the heart of the steroid era. Um, mm, yeah. when, when a lot of these things were coming to light. Uh, and so, you know, there was the Mitchell report and you had guys like Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit um, involved in that. The Balco trials, Jason Giambi, who was one of my favorite guys. And there is a, there's a chapter in here about his acquisition as well. Um, You know, he was, he testified in front of a grand jury and it got leaked to a paper. uh, And and so he was outed as being a steroid user. I'd say the wildest story I covered and sort of just player that I covered Covering Alex Rodriguez was like covering a second beat uh, in addition to covering the Yankees. Yeah. There was always something going on with A-Rod um, on the field, off the field. Uh, the steroid uh, situation with him obviously was a huge story at the beginning of 2009. Then he had hip surgery and missed the first four or five weeks of the season. Then he comes back and, and, and has a very good season has this incredible last day to get to 30 and 130 home runs and 100 RBIs. And then they win the World Series for the only championship of his career. Um, A-Rod, A-Rod's 2009 season is a pretty fascinating story in and of itself. Um, it would have been that way for any player, but for him, uh, given the sort of the noise that was always surrounding him, uh, it was certainly, th- that was certainly a wild year and a, and a, a wild player to cover. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to, I can't, I can't let you leave without talking about the Red Sox rivalry, right? So towards the end of the book, you talk rivalries, including some I wasn't really aware of, like my hometown, Kansas City Royals. I grew up in the Kansas City area. I, I did, I was not alive when the George Brett flip out, if you will, happened. So I watched that on YouTube and that was disturbing. But the, the rivalry with the Yankees that everyone knows is, of course, Yankees and the Red Sox. And it all actually circled, as you mentioned 
briefly before back to Babe Ruth. So on a high level, can you walk us through this hatred? And I didn't know you went to school in Boston. So that must've been real tough as a Yankees fan, having <laughs> talks everywhere, but walk, yeah, us, my- walk us through this rivalry for those that may not know, which I can't believe no, anyone doesn't know about this, but tell us about that. Yeah, I went to school. Uh, I, my freshman dorm was about four blocks from Fenway Park, and we used to go oh, there all the time. But I, I wasn't wearing my Yankee hat to Fenway back then. Probably uh, not. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I enjoyed my uh, my safety more than uh, more than my fandom at that point. I, I think uh, you know you look back, it all starts with you know with the Yankees acquiring Babe Ruth, uh, you know, from the Red Sox back in 1920, and from there it just kept there just kept being. Uh, you know, more things between the two teams. Now the Red Sox didn't win. And a lot of times, you know, rivalries are made in the postseason. They're made when teams are battling it out for first place. And the Yankees, it was a one-sided rivalry. Um, you know, I think Michael Kay used the, fra- used the, the uh, phrase, you know, the, the Yankees were the hammer, the Red Sox were the nail every year. There were just, there was never, it never reversed until 2004. Um, but even back in the 40s and 50s, Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams were always going at it for batting titles and MVPs. Um, and, you know, it re- where it really heated up was in the 1970s. Thurman Munson, the teams that he led as the captain, uh, and Carlton Fisk, the catcher for the Red Sox, they really didn't like each other. The players on those two teams really didn't like each other. Uh, there were many fights. It was really personal. Uh, it wasn't just an on-the-field rivalry. These guys really, really disliked each other. Remember, this is in the era before free agency. So now you have players who have played on the Red Sox and then signed as a free agent with the Yankees, right? We saw that with Johnny Damon. We saw Roger Clemens jump from one to the other uh, after a little pit stop in Toronto. We've seen a lot of players who have played for both teams, gone for both teams and, and played, you know, a guy from the Red Sox comes to the Yankees. He's played with other guys on other teams and, there wasn't the animosity between players now that there is, that there was back in the seventies. And those teams really, really hated each other. Um, you know, the, the Bucky Dent home run at Fenway park uh, in the one game playoff after the Yankees had come back from 14 games down uh, late in that season. Uh, that's one of the most legendary uh, ends of a season ever. And Bucky Dent, you know, received a not so nice nickname from the fans up in Boston as a result of it. Uh, I talked to Bucky for this book and he was great. Um, and, and then sort of it died down for a little while. The eighties, the, the Yankees really didn't win much. The Red Sox were in the world series once, but neither team was particularly relevant for a, for a number of those years. And then once the Yankees started winning in the nineties and the Red Sox got good in the late nineties, when they got Pedro Martinez and Manny Ramirez and uh, all of a sudden the rivalry was back and they faced each other in a pair of ALCS matchups in 2003 and 2004 that were as intense and as heated as anything I've ever covered. Um, and you know, the Yankees win in 2003, Aaron Boone's walk-off home run just puts another dagger in the heart of Red Sox fans. And then the next year, the Red Sox come back from a three games to zero deficit for the first time any team had ever done that. Uh, and then they go on to win the World Series to end that famed curse of the Bambino. So these two teams have a long history together. Um, there have certainly been some periods that have been more heated than others but uh the fans don't ever get less heated right you 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 wear a yankee hat to fenway you're going to hear it and vice versa and uh it's it's what makes sports fun i mean rivalries are great it gives you a it gives you a villain if you're in one city and it gives you a villain if you're in the other city and uh you know the teams can be sort of mediocre but when they get together uh there's a little more juice in stadium 
Absolutely. I, that, you're right. That's what make, makes sports so fun. And my last question for you, Mark, what do the Yankees mean to New York and what do the Yankees mean to baseball? I, I think they mean a ton. I mean, New York has the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area, if I'm counting correctly, has nine professional teams. Uh, you've got the Giants and Jets in the NFL. You've got the Knicks and the Nets in the NBA, the Islanders, Rangers, and Devils in the NHL. And of course, the Yankees and Mets in Major League Baseball. But the Yankees are the one that has the longest history, the most successful history. The biggest stars in New York sports history um, have pretty much all been members of the Yankees. Um, and, you know, they've, they've been the number one team in town. You know, you go to a lot of other cities uh, and you turn on the, the local sports radio station, they're talking football. 12 months a year. They're talking basketball 12 months a year. Mm -hmm. New York, you turn on WFAN or ESPN radio, doesn't matter what month it is. It could be the middle of the summer. It could be the middle of the winter. People are talking baseball. And there's a lot of passion for the Mets in this town, but the Yankees are always, always have been and, and still continue to be sort of the team that drives the city the most. When the Yankees are good, there's a, an electricity in this town, you know, come September, October, uh, that that you just don't feel pretty much anywhere else. Uh, and as for in terms of baseball, you know, we talked about it before. They've got dozens of Hall of Famers. They've got 27 championships, 40 pennants, um, and they've just been the most successful team in the game. And the thing about the Yankees, I think, in terms of the whole sport, nobody's indifferent about them. You might love them, you might hate them, but yeah. you have that feeling one way or the other. Um, and I think that's that's great. You know, you want to have that team that. You know, if, if you, uh, Derek Jeter used to say when he would go on the road and he would get booed, he said, they don't, you know, if, if you weren't, if you weren't doing something, they wouldn't boo you. So, Amen. um, you Amen. know, somebody else once says that they don't bug, they don't boo scrubs. Right. So, uh, if you're getting booed, it means you're probably doing stuff that's, you know, ticking off the, the fan bases of the teams. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously in terms of baseball history, there's no team that has had the contributions to the sport that the Yankees have had. And, uh, that's why it was fun to, kind of tackle this book and you know like I said you can't go through the entire history of the team but I was able to pick out a handful of topics and a handful of players and and uh, managers and GMs and owners to to sort of go through and it veers more towards the last 40 years only because those are the people I could get on the phone and and, and sit down right. with and, and talk to uh you know if I could have sat down with Mickey Mantle I would have loved that but right. that was not going to happen so um you know, we tried to take a, a, a different approach of sort of separating it into uh, thematic chapters and, and going from there with the captains and the game winners, you know, the big hits in history and the big free agent and trade acquisitions, the rivalries, the, uh, you mentioned the architects with the GMs and managers and, um, and owners. So, uh, you know, if, if you're a baseball fan in general, you should learn something reading this book. And like you said, they're, they're a huge part of baseball history, whether you're a fan of the Yankees or not. So I think you don't have to be a Yankee fan to, to be able to enjoy this book. That's true. I agree with that. And as a new Yankees fan, I agree with that. I learned so much, but as a longtime lifelong baseball fan, I learned so much too. And it's, it's such a good book. The franchise New York Yankees, a curated history of the Bronx Bombers is out June 7th. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Rachel. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mark, for being here. And thank you to the special person who introduced me to this team. May we enjoy many Yankee seasons in my brand new and really comfortable Yankees jersey. 
One of my favorite parts about I'd Rather Be Reading is our diversity of topics. And that said, we'll be back at the top of next week with one of the fashion industry's biggest influencers. Stay tuned.